This week on Grape Encounters Radio. I can't tell you how many times I've read somebody uh, say something like, so if you're having a salad and you want to have wine with it, to counteract the acid, you have to serve something sweet. Oh, my God, that'll make the wine taste three times as sweet. You have to serve something acid. As you said, fire with fire. Wow. Hey, are you going to use that? Uh, Can I? Yeah. Give me permission on the air right here, right now. Yeah, but, but can you at least once give me credit for it? me a grape, crush me some ice, skin me a peach, save the fuzz for my pillow. And a great big welcome to Grape Encounters Radio. Today, I'm so pleased to present a true superstar from the world of food and wine. My very special guest today has hosted approximately 2,500 shows on Food Network Television. As a journalist, he has written for Gourmet Magazine, The New York Times, Food and Wine, Bon Appetit, Harper's Bazaar, Wine Spectator, The Huffington Post, Forbes, and many more. Author of numerous books, including the James Beard Award winner, It's All American Food, my totally mesmerizing and insightful guest, David Rosengarten, also uses his food and wine expertise to select wines for Golden Ram imports. And I couldn't be more excited to spend most of today's show talking food and wine with a true master. David Rosengarten, welcome to Grape Encounters Radio. Been looking forward to this for a long time. Glad to have you. I have been looking forward to, David. So where are you at right now? You're in New York City? I am in New York, yes. I'm actually in the beautiful Hudson Valley at the moment. So tell me how much travel you do, because I got a chance to look at your newsletters, and it seems to me like you're on the go just about all the time. Yeah, well, I I keep up the, the schedule I've had for years as a food, wine, and travel writer. But then this new thing happened a couple of years ago. I started to import wines. I work for a company called Golden Ram, and I've been the chief chooser and curator. So guess what that requires? Wine trips, mostly to Europe. Well, you know, they, they could send the bottles to you. <laughs> they could, I suppose. But yeah, I think it's probably well, better to put the wines in perspective, however. Yeah, because we're going to talk about perception later, and I perceive them better when I'm in Europe. <laughs> okay, so before we jump into our topics for the day, I did want to ask you about the beginning of your career, because you kind of did what I did, except in reverse. And you started out, I guess you decided to teach, and it was all about theater, and then made a hard turn in another direction. How'd that happen? Yeah, well, the short story of the long story is that I grew up in a very, very foodie family, and this was, you know, before there were many foodies, but my dad was obsessed with it. So much so that he took a couple of years to go into the restaurant business, though his main business was garment business in New York, but he opened a restaurant when I was about 12. He was in the garment business and, yeah. the, and the restaurant business. Well, for a couple of years. So he could have been the original French Laundry. <laughs> That's pretty funny. So uh, I watched them for two or three years slave away at this restaurant, which ultimately failed. The investors pulled out. And I said to myself, oh, not for me. I'm going to spend my life loving food, not slaving away in a restaurant. So my dad was also a lover of the arts, and I became very fond of the theater. And I went on to get a doctorate in theater and then be a college professor in theater. But while I was a college professor in a town in upstate New York, I started to teach cooking classes and wine classes in downtown. This is Saratoga. 
Saratoga Springs, New York, and said, oh, my God, I love this. So I was able to make the transition from theater professor to food and wine guy. But you you end up uh, spending a great deal of your time doing television work and public appearances, what have you. So I'm guessing everything that you learned from the theater perspective translated very well into what you're doing today. Uh, Absolutely. You know, I, I, I was lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time to do the very first show on the Food Network. And I always said at that time, what I know about performance is much more beneficial to me than what I know about food. (laughs) Besides, I think food and wine has a great deal of theater involved in it. That's something we're going to talk about in just a second. But it doesn't work to just put a plate of food out or just sip a glass of wine. It has to be in some kind of context. And I think that's what you focus on a great deal. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I think the context changes a lot of things. You know, even if the context is very simple, you know, even if you're just on a beach on a blanket, the waves are pounding, you know, you you might go, oh, this is the perfect setting for my chicken salad or whatever. You know, it it helps. One of my favorite things to talk about is how people will go into a tasting room. They'll spend a whole weekend wine tasting and they'll go from tasting room to tasting room and they'll end up walking off with a case of this and a half a case of that. They get home and they open the case up under the fluorescent lights in the kitchen after they've had a fight with the spouse, after they've had a terrible day after, you know, listening to the kids scream for, you know, two hours and they go, wait a second, this wine doesn't taste as good as it did. You know, somebody pulled a switcheroo on us. And it's all about the difference between drinking that wine in a perfectly manicured tasting room versus a setting that really doesn't complement the wine. I think some people mistakenly believe that a bottle of wine has a certain fixed reality to it. That, you know, there is that wine and that's what it is. That's kind of the the thinking that allowed various wine critics to start doing the 100-point scale. You know, Parker gives it a 93, and guy goes into the wine shop and says, uh, yeah, I want that wine that Parker gave a 93. And, the you know, the, the, the shop owner, with whom the customer might have dealt for years, says, uh, well, you know, I know your taste and I know your life, and I think you'd like this wine better, this one. And the guy says, well, what did Parker give it? Well, I gave it a 92. No, I want the 93. You know, exactly. as if there's some eternal reality in a bottle of wine. There's not. It all depends on you, where you are, how you feel. They taste different all the time. And how many times have you enjoyed a bottle of wine, come back to that bottle of wine, and it tastes completely different? Right. And don't give up on the wine. Just set it aside and wait till you're in the right mood. I guess the hard part is knowing what the right mood is for the wine. How do you deal with that? Well, I mean, that that is a little bit hit and miss, I suppose. If it's, you know, let's say it's a, it's a um, Burgundy is often thought of as a very romantic kind of wine. And there's a particular Burgundy, in fact, that's called Les Amoureux, the lovers. So, you know, you pick out that Burgundy and you pick it out for a very romantic dinner, let's say it's for a Valentine's Day dinner, and you serve aphrodisiac kind of foods, and the music is just right, and the lighting is just right. You know, like, that's one way you can influence how that wine's going to taste. I'd be very surprised if you open that bottle of uh, Les Amoureux and go, this is crap! I mean, you know, that probably <laughs> exactly. won't happen. But other than that, I mean, it's kind of it's kind of hit and miss. You know, like, um, we, we could try to control things, but like the rest of life, you never really can. You know, I had a visit about two months ago with Michael Mandavi. And one of the things that he said that I found very interesting was that if a lay person loves a bottle of wine, that it's pretty likely that the wine experts will like it too. Do you agree with that? Uh, 
and, and let's rule but let's rule out white zen for a second and okay. but, but when you're talking about you know generally good wines i think there's some truth to that that wines can be very prima facie that they can stand on their own merits but we have the control over making the wine a lot better you know not to disagree with michael who certainly knows you know what sells uh, a lot better than i do but i think it kind of depends on the kind of wine we're talking about so let's say for example as you may know, and I'm not sure if this is true, you're based in California, and I'm not sure if this is true among California palates, but most of the upper and upper echelon palates that I know around the world are crazy about German wine. Um, and, and a lot of these wines are dry, but some of them have a little sweetness. And, you know, a man like Hugh Johnson in England, who's, you know, the most famous wine writer in the world, his passion is Riesling, and he doesn't care whether it's dry or a little off dry or a little sweet, but there are a lot a lot of American consumers who think that there's something wrong with sweet, which is a very odd thing because when it comes to dessert, they never think there's something wrong with sweet. <laughs> but when it comes to wine, it's almost like a little bit of self-doubt or something. They feel like, I have to show the world that I understand that a good wine is a dry wine. But it's not true, and it's not that way for most people in the world. So I would say, just to answer the Michael Mondavi question, there are some people who are the average consumer who would look at a, let's say, a German cabinet wine and say, oh, I don't like that, it's sweet, whereas you, Johnson, and a bunch of other wine writers would go, that is gorgeous. Well, you know, the interesting thing about German wines is that the sweeter it gets, the more expensive it gets, too, for the most yeah. part, Yeah, you know, which is very counterintuitive to Americans. Right. And sort of following that, over the years, the only German wines that our major wine publications wrote about were the most expensive, thinking, oh, those are probably the best. So you have, you know, 96 points for a Birmenauschleser, 97 points for a Trocken Birmenauschleser, but that's all they wrote about, and it's one of the factors that made Americans continue to think that German wines must be sweet. But the reality is, you know, a dry German wine at $16 a bottle, that can be a great wine also. The difference in the Pricing is pretty much the, um, the the details of production. Yeah, exactly. It's very expensive to risk leaving the grapes out to become that ripe. You lose a hell of a lot of grapes. All right, so David, we're going to get a chance to try some of the wines that have your name on it. That is the ultimate thrill, and you didn't even have to make it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Just very had cool. to find it. <laughs> uh, we've got on the line television personality, cookbook author, wine curator, David Rosengarten. David, stay with me. We'll be back with more grape and counters Thank you. right after this while you're letting the wine breathe facebook us at facebook.com forward slash grape encounters radio more grape encounters next words can be very confusing when you're crazy people say that you're nuts but what if you're crazy about nuts well, that doesn't mean that you should be sent to the funny farm. It means that you should be sent to the farm of MM Organics, the producers of organic heirloom walnuts and walnut products that are so incomparably unique and delicious, other nuts will be reduced to wallflowers. Whoops, there we go with those crazy meanings of words again. After all, if being a wallflower means disappearing into the background, then why does being a walnut from MM Organics mean standing out from the rest? Confused? Well, 
you won't be when you discover the glorious deliciousness of walnut halves, baking pieces, fair trade chocolate covered walnuts, and other scrumptious walnut products from MM Organics. Learn more and order yours at mmorganics.com, where you'll also find our utterly irresistible two horse Portuguese dessert wine that everyone goes nuts for. Get crazy at mmorganics.com. A few days ago, a listener visited our wine bar, the Grape Encounters Emporium, because he wanted to see for himself if the wines from Cardella that I brag about all the time are as good as I keep telling all of you. He had driven quite a long distance to check out the Cardella wines, so we were delighted to let him sample them all. When he was most of the way through the tasting, I asked him if I had oversold these wines in any way. He smiled and replied, absolutely not. I can't recall any winery blowing my mind with virtually every wine they make. But after watching literally hundreds of faces light up after the first sip, I can tell you without any reservation that I believe Cardella is poised to be the next great American cult winery. Extraordinary whites, incomparable reds, insanely great values. I love Cardella's wines, and you will too. Learn how to get yours online at GrapeEncounters.com. And now, Grape Encounters with David Wilson continues. I can almost taste it, baby. And sweet as wine. All right, we are back with probably one of the most high-profile... Nah, we're just going to call him the most high-profile food television personality, cookbook author, and all-around wine and foodie of all time, David Rosengarten. How's that? I just you didn't say high maintenance. Okay, I, I'm all right I just it. I just made you the grand poobah food and yeah, wine. Yeah, you did. You're uh, lying, but thank you. All right. Well, how many episodes on? Is that this must be a misprint? Twenty five hundred episodes on the Food Network. Believe it or not, it's true <laughs> because they hired me to do a daily interview talk show about food that was originally called Food News and Views, and I did it five nights. <laughs> a week for about seven years. So that really adds up. That was about, I don't know, something like 1,500 shows. That goes very quickly, yeah. Then I did 500 cooking shows. They were called Taste, and then various other things they asked me to do. So yeah, it added up. I know, it's crazy. So how exhausting is that? Well, it wasn't so bad. I was a little bit younger, and, um, you know, TV gets you. The adrenaline involved in doing TV is incredible. Just since you're asking about exhaustion, you might be interested in this little thing that happened. Uh, when I was uh, doing the, the cooking shows, they concentrate them all, like, into a couple of weeks, and every day you do five. You get there at six in the morning, and then you bang out five cooking shows. But me, I was also doing this live talk show at the end of the day that was airing about six o'clock. So I'd have to do the five cooking shows, run into the dressing room, get freshened up, and come back and do an hour of live TV. Oh, Lord. That was exhausting. (laughs) All right. So you sent me some wine here, and I'm completely baffled by the instructions I got. I've got two bottles of wine here. I was also told to have some lettuce and vinegar and a cookie available. Yeah. Well, you know what I'd really love to talk to you about today, David, since I heard that you wanted to talk about perception of wine. I think it makes all the difference in the world, whether you drink the wine by itself or whether you drink it with some food. I just want to show you a couple of basic food wine matching tricks that you probably already know. But if you would, for example, just give a taste to that 
2014 Philippe Goulet. That's the name of the producer. And the wine is a Petit Chablis. Now, I'm pouring this with my Corvin, by the way, because I figured any wine that came from you had to be great, and I don't want to waste it. Oh, that's nice of you. I hope it gives you many days, weeks, months of pleasure. Well, <laughs> if it makes it past tomorrow, that would be yeah. amazing. Okay, both so, of, so I, I have... Both wines you have are um, Golden Ram imports. I choose and curate wines for them. So most people are familiar with uh, Chablis, but we're talking about the real Chablis that comes from Chablis, France. So Chablis, Chablis with a capital C. With a capital C. A lot, and, a lot of people don't know that, you know, that the capital C means everything. Yeah, but of course there are probably some labels in California that also put a capital C. Oh, were know? they allowed to do that? I thought they weren't. I'd say something very funny as a little sidebar. There was a producer in Chablis, which is, you know, a town and, and a region in France, who was really pissed off that in California they dared to put the name Chablis on their bottles of jug wine, let's say, from the Central Valley. So this guy, his name was William Fev, he decided to get his revenge one year. And of course, Chablis, real Chablis, is made from Chardonnay. So he created a label <laughs> that he tried to market. It was called Le Chardonnay du Napa Valley. <laughs> and of course, it was made in Chablis, but he was just trying to that get is, his revenge. That is awesome. Was He, he wasn't successful, I take it. No, no. It ended up being just a little joke that he circulated among his friends. <laughs> uh, that is awesome. All right. So I've got my Chablis poured. So what do I do next? All righty. Well, uh, I just wanted to say that Chablis, one of the reasons I, I love Chablis and I urged Golden Ram to import it is that, to me, a great Chablis is probably the greatest expression of Chardonnay in the world. Now, at this level, if the label says Chablis, it's just a village wine, not a great wine. If it says Petit Chablis, if it's a good one, again, it's just a village kind of wine, not a great one. But what I like about this wine, I'm anxious to see what you think, it's got the classic Chablis character. It's good. It's a little stony, it's a little minerally, it's very lemony, acid, relatively low in alcohol. It's crisp white wine. It's great wine for oysters. So give it a taste, David. I am loving it over here. Oh, good. <laughs> good. Loving, loving it. And immediately, I know this is a food wine, but that's just me. So how does somebody who is not quite as familiar with pairing food and wine as, well, nobody's as familiar as you are, but how does somebody know immediately whether they need to get some food in their mouth with this wine? Is there a rule of thumb that you use? Um, most of the wines of the world are made for food. You know, we do something in America that's viewed as quite odd by the rest of the world. I mean, I understand that I do it, but we Americans like to have a glass of red wine by itself. Yeah. There, there's no region in the world where they do that. Maybe a glass of white wine, maybe a glass of rosé, but we Americans really like our wine as cocktail. And that in the rest of the world is heresy. In the rest of the world, for the most part, wine is for food. So I would say whenever you open a bottle of wine, do try to figure out, you know, what's the best food to go with it. Now, one rule, and since we are talking today about perception, here's something I want you to do right now. Okay. Keep in mind that if a wine is acid, and this wine you just tasted should seem quite acid. Very acid, yeah. A way to affect that and affect your perception of it is to taste a food that's acid. So I have asked you to take a leaf of lettuce, 
and put some vinegar on it. Oh, I hope it's not balsamic vinegar, is it, by any chance? No. Oh, good, 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 because that's sweet, and that brings up other problems. But if you had some red wine vinegar, and you put it on the lettuce leaf, I'd ask you to taste that, give it a good douse with the vinegar, and David, I'm betting that the Chablis is going to taste less acid after you've had the vinegar. You know what? It, It is absolutely crazy how that acidity just dropped off the planet. Exactly. Amazing. I'm so glad you confirmed that. That's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's amazing because when I first took a sip of it, I went, wow, you know, this is not a glass of wine that I would just sit and drink on its own, but I know it's a great wine. And you take that little bit of vinegar and lettuce and it just completely, completely turns the wine 180. So now, and all your listeners know, what kind of wine to serve with salad. People classically go, oh, you can't drink wine with salad. Well, that's Yeah, if you're drinking a 1945 Chateau Margaux, I wouldn't have it with a salad because it's going to affect this great balanced wine. But if your wine is a little acid, have it with a salad. It'll make the wine taste richer and rounder and less acid. Because especially, you know, when you're talking vinegar and wine, that can be very dangerous, depending upon what the wine is that you're drinking. Yeah, it can, and re- it can is, really backfire on you, right? That's right. If the wine is perfectly balanced to begin with, you don't want to mess with that. Yeah, <laughs> but ex- if exactly. the wine, you know, a little acid and the food is a little acid. But of course, there's one other way to use acid wine also. Well, a couple ways. Acid also works well with salt. So if you've got salty food, the acid tends to taste very refreshing. And a sort of subset of that is the oysters we were talking about before. Oysters are briny, oysters are salty, and the acid of the wine acts as a kind of cut through the salty food. Well, I I, I took the liberty of dishing myself up a great big plate of oysters on a half shell here. So uh, (laughs) we're going to take a a break, and then I'm... I don't have any oysters oh, here. Oh, you, you fooled me. <laughs> but would, would you have been proud of me if I really did have oysters here right now? I would have been a member of your fan club, but I am anyway. Okay, great. Hey, listen, David Rosengard, hang on for just a second. We are going to take a quickie break. We got another bottle of wine here, and I guess I'm having dessert with it, right? Yep, that's the idea. All right, so wine and cookies when we come back with David Rosengarten here on Grape Encounters Radio. As summer fades and fall settles in, magic happens in wine countries around the globe. Vineyards laden with luscious fruit become the center of attention, and wine lovers from far and wide come to celebrate the long-awaited harvest. Every wine country has its own unique character and events to commemorate the season, but few places offer the diversity and sheer number of opportunities that await you on California's central coast. So if you want to be in the absolute center of it all, set your sights on a Tascadero unpretentious, inexpensive, and the truest expression of Americana. A Tascadero is the perfect base camp for your fall wine adventure. A Tascadero is the midpoint between Los Angeles and San Francisco, but during harvest, it might as well be the center of the universe. The wine world waits all year for harvest, but don't wait to book your California Central Coast wine adventure. Let Atascadero be your gracious host. And all you have to do is log on to visitatascadero.com. For years, I've been dying to get a truly exceptional wine refrigerator to keep my liquid assets safe from the scorching summer heat that can turn awesome wine into teardrops. Heat is the number one enemy of fine wine, and collectors will tell you that a wine cellar is absolutely essential. Well, that's just not true. 
for a tiny fraction of the cost to build even a modest cellar in a converted closet. You can own a wine refrigeration unit so exceptional and so beautiful that you'll want to show it off to absolutely everyone. My unit is truly the best there is. It's from King's Bottle, the experts in wine preservation and cooling. King's Bottle has wine refrigerators for every need. They're gorgeous to look at and priced lower than you would ever imagine. Want to see why I'm so excited? Click the King's Bottle link at GrapeEncounters.com. King's Bottle wine refrigerators are so cool. See them at GrapeEncounters.com. Money may not buy happiness, but it will buy you some very good wine. And if that doesn't make you happy, you need to be listening to a self-help show. Not Grape Encounters Radio. Grape Encounters Radio continues. Listen to me, butterfly. There's only so much wine you can drink in one life. And we are back with Grape Encounters Radio. Hey, always a great day when I get to drink wine and eat food in the studio. I remember when I worked at a radio station, they said, no wine or food in the studio. They were afraid I was going <laughs> to spill it in the console. But one person who certainly would advocate for broadcasting with a glass of wine in your hand, David Rosengarten. Oh, my gosh. First of all, I want to say this, David, your newsletter. I don't want to forget to tell people to subscribe to your newsletter. I think you have the number one food. Is it food and wine newsletter or just food in general newsletter in the world? You're a great guy. Thank you. But yes, it's food and wine or wine and food. It's really about both things. Okay. For example, the current issue has a lead story on what to drink with cheese. And it's a very difficult subject. I did something like 800 tastes to arrive at my conclusions, but it's a lot about other things as well. It's other beverages, believe it or not, that do very well. And I guess the conventional wisdom about wine and cheese pairing seems to be really evolving these days. And people are really rethinking that. And all of the old literature on what to pair with cheeses, it seems to me like we're definitely rewriting those rules. There's an old romance about wine and cheese, how easy they are together, but it's not true. It's not true that it's easy to find a great match. And there's a romance about, oh, you've got some of your Chambon Musigny left over your red burgundy. Have it with the Epoise. Have it with the Camembert. Those are tricky, man. I mean, a lot of people in the trenches now believe that red wine doesn't go so easily with cheese. White wine, even off-dry white wine, is an easier match in general. Well, okay, but I've got a lot of listeners out there that are going, you know what, I don't want to, well, I was going to say, they are going to say, I don't want to go through 800 wines and cheeses to figure out how to pair it. But then I I rethought that and realized that, (laughs) yes, yes, they do want to do that. (laughs) But Oh, that's true. It's not not like it's hard work. Let's talk about this Riesling here. Tell me about the wine, and i got to open my cookies in a little packet here. Yeah, but make sure you taste the wine before you well, taste the Well, I'm not going to. No, I know that. Yeah, you know? yeah. So, um, because, of course, the whole point, as we both well know, is that the cookies are going to affect your perception of the wine. So, as we said before, David, a lot of people are, you know, 
and there's a lot of Americans kind of have this thing about sweet wine, like, oh, it's not sophisticated to drink sweet wine, it's bad if it's sweet. It's just not true. Some of the best wines in the world are sweet, and some of the best wine experts in the world love wine that, you know, they can love it dry, they can love it a little sweet, they can love it very sweet. It just all depends on the wine. So this particular wine that you've got right there happens to have some age on it, which is great for German Riesling. As you can see, it's 15 years old. Wow. You know uh, what? I didn't even look down at the date on this wine. Yeah. I think I'm dyslexic, and I thought it was a 2010. <laughs> right. It's but not. It is, in a fact, 2001. 2001. Yes. And German wine ages magnificently. If you're looking at it in the glass, it probably doesn't even look that old for a white wine. No, and not at all. In fact, I got to be honest with you. I just snuck in a sip. I figured, yeah. you know what? He's not looking. I'm just <laughs> sipping the wine. This wine's delicious. Oh, thank you. That's the whole thing about Riesling. It's just delicious. Forget about dry sweet. It's just delicious. So this producer, Tony Yost, a very traditional producer, mm. right on the Rhine in a little area called the Mittelrhein. But this particular vineyard, it's the Valufa Valkenberg. It's actually across the river in the region known as the Rheingau, perhaps the most famous region in Germany. It's a Riesling. It's Cabinet. And that means that the grapes were picked fairly ripe, but we can tell from the label that the winemaker left a little bit of sugar in the wine, just a little bit of sugar. So tell us what you perceive about the sweetness of this wine. Oh, I think it's deceptive because even though I know there's a little bit of sugar in there, the perception is that it's actually sweeter than it probably really is. And I I think sometimes that people mistake fruit for sugar. And vice Absolutely. versa. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. And, that, and you and, know, sometimes you give somebody a glass of wine and say, hey, what does that smell like? They go, it smells sweet. Well, sweetness doesn't smell. <laughs> does it, you know, open your box of Domino sugar, smell it. Do you smell anything? No. Yeah. They're saying it smells fruity because fruit is sweet. Oh, yeah, exactly. All right. And I think that's a nice combination. What's amazing to me about this wine is that it's 15 years old and it's pretty pristine. Why does this Riesling hold up so well at that age? Riesling is pretty pretty resistant. As it ages, rather than going towards oxidation, which would make it smell like sherry, it goes more towards this thing that the Brits call petrol. <laughs> it yeah, takes exactly. on this mineral. Do you get it? Do you get oh. it in that wine? It's like gasoline. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, almost. exactly. Yeah. And people listen to us saying, petrol and go, oh, that sounds terrible. I would not drink gasoline. Right. But once you acquire a taste for that and you understand that it's okay and it's part of the whole complexion of that wine, then you start really craving it and loving it. Okay. Speaking of craving and loving, I have a Mrs. Fields cookie here and not chocolate chip, by the way. All right. I'm not telling you what I picked out. Okay. But go ahead. I'm going to, can I take my taste now? Yeah. A little sip of the wine, right? Okay. Just to make sure you remember how sweet it is. Mm -hmm. Now I'm, I'm, I'm taking a sip of milk now. Oh, no, I'm not. No, no, right. no, no, no. Mm. Then, then taste the cookie, then go right back to the wine and tell me if the sweetness perception changes. All right, hang on a second. Here we go. Yeah. Yes. Do it again yes. if you have to. Yes, definitely. And I hope I'm not getting this wrong because <laughs> I think the sweetness mellowed out a lot. Exactly. It tastes less sweet when you have it next to something sweet. Actually, I'm eating an oatmeal raisin cookie. Oh, okay. That should do it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that definitely yeah. did it. But that might have not been the best choice of cookies. But my instructions from your people did not specify the cookie. No, Sorry. Just, you know, I just said, let's just make it on the sweet side, you know. But anyway, the way that you can use this information, just like things that are acid makes acid wine 
wine taste less acid. Things that are sweet make sweet wine taste less sweet. So let's say I'm in a restaurant, right, and they're, they're serving me a grilled swordfish, and I'm having a California Chardonnay with it. And the California Chardonnay strikes me as having a little bit too much residual sugar. It's a little on the sweet side. If I ask the waiter to bring me some kind of salsa that has fruit in it, like bring me a pineapple salsa, whatever, and I put it on the swordfish, the wine tastes less sweet, more dry, in fact, more complex and interesting. Wait, I've just had an epiphany thanks to you. <laughs> okay. You fight fire with fire. Exactly. That's I it. I never thought of that, but that's it. Yeah. You fight fire with fire. If it's sweet and you want to reduce the sweetness, have something sweet. If it's acidic, then have something that's got a little acid to it, etc. And it's so simple. And you know, Boy, that so many is, people you know, get that it wrong simple. That's over a- the years. You and I have both looked at you know the classic prescriptions for wine with food. I can't tell you how many times I've read somebody uh, say something like, so if you're having a salad and you want to have wine with it, to counteract the acid, you have to serve something sweet. Oh my God, that'll make the wine taste three times as sweet. You have to serve exactly. something acid. As you said, fire with fire. Wow. Hey, are you going to use that? Uh, can you, I? Yeah, give, I got, yeah. Give I me permission so. on the air right here, right now. Yeah, but, but can you at least once give me credit for it? All right. Every All right. time I mention it, somewhere in that word cluster, I'll mention your name. Send me 20 cents each time <laughs> you use it. Okay. Okay. Hey, David, we were going to do this whole thing on perception, and we ran out of time because we got a little too crazy with the wine and food. Yep. Well, it's only your perception that we've run out of time. No, just kidding. We have, in fact. Well, let's just say this simply, because I don't want to promise listeners something and then not deliver. Yep. The whole idea is it all is intertwined with what we just did with the food, that everything matters, right? And everything. And context matters. And so what you eat matters, what you listen to music-wise matters. And we are going to come back and talk about that, okay? Can you promise me that you will come back at some point? And, Absolutely. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about that? We'll live for another day. Because I actually have here some music that you picked out for me to play on the air, but we'll do that the next time. But everything okay. matters. The colors in the room, the company you keep, the smells in the room, boy, that makes a big difference. So I think we've learned a valuable lesson here today, even though we didn't talk about that part of it. David, let me leave you with a quick one. Okay. The glass you use, of course. Now, I've done this exercise. I've taken eight glasses that are very different from each other, and I've poured out of one bottle of wine, the same wine, into the eight glasses, and then presented them blind to people and said, what do you think are these uh, eight different wines? Wow. And they, they go like, well, the one in the first glass is blah, blah, blah. The one in the second glass is more of a, maybe it's more from a southern place, blah, blah, blah. They think they're different wines. We had uh, Mr. George Riedel in here. Oh, yeah. In the studio. And I tell you what, sitting across the table from him and, you know, just trying different glasses with wine and him explaining the finer details, I was mesmerized by that. In fact, if you want to hear that interview, just go to grapeencounters.com and in the search engine, put in Riedel and you'll find it there. But anyway, David Rosengart, my gosh, I had a great time. We could just sit and do this for hours. And, you know, it's hard to do the food and wine thing over the phone, but we pulled it off. We did okay, man. Thanks to you. You're good at this. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, hey, I really appreciate you being on. So much great information. So let's do a plug for David Rosengart because you've got, you know, all kinds of cookbooks out there. You have the newsletter. Where can people find more of you? Yeah, well, I'm always online, davidrosengarten.com. It'll give you the 
whole universe. And very important, based on what we did today, the import company is called Golden Ram. Two words, Golden Ram. And you can order our wines online. You can find them in stores in some states. And there's about maybe 75 different wines. You had just two of them today. Yeah, and I can honestly say they were absolutely wonderful. Loved it. And loved having you on. I really appreciate it. And we will have you on very soon again. Thank you, David. I look forward to it. All right. Uh, David Rosengarten. And uh, we will be back with more Grape Encounters right after this. A few days ago, a listener visited our wine bar, the Grape Encounters Emporium, because he wanted to see for himself if the wines from Cardella that I brag about all the time are as good as I keep telling all of you. He had driven quite a long distance to check out the Cardella wines, so we were delighted to let him sample them all. When he was most of the way through the tasting, I asked him if I had oversold these wines in any way. He smiled and replied, absolutely not. I can't recall any winery blowing my mind with virtually every wine they make. But after watching literally hundreds of faces light up after the first sip, I can tell you without any reservation that I believe Cardella is poised to be the next great American cult winery. Extraordinary whites, incomparable reds, insanely great values. I love Cardella's wines, and you will too. Learn how to get yours online at GrapeEncounters.com. For years, I've been dying to get a truly exceptional wine refrigerator to keep my liquid assets safe from the scorching summer heat that can turn awesome wine into teardrops. Heat is the number one enemy of fine wine, and collectors will tell you that a wine cellar is absolutely essential. Well, that's just not true. For a tiny fraction of the cost to build even a modest cellar in a converted closet, you can own a wine refrigeration unit so exceptional and so beautiful that you'll want to show it off to absolutely everyone. My unit is truly the best there is. It's from King's Bottle, the experts in wine preservation and cooling. King's Bottle has wine refrigerators for every need. They're gorgeous to look at and priced lower than you would ever imagine. Want to see why I'm so excited? Click the King's Bottle link at GrapeEncounters.com. King's Bottle wine refrigerators are so cool. See them at GrapeEncounters.com. She's earthy, honest, and sipping each week as a service to you. From Sunset Magazine, it's Sarah Schneider, and this is Sipping with Sarah on Grape Encounters Radio. Okay, and it is time for Sipping with Sarah and... Sarah, a couple of days ago, I got into a heated conversation with a wine wholesaler over the very same question that I'm going to pose to you today, and I have no idea what position you're going to take on this one. And I don't know what the question is. (laughs) You do, because you were prepped for this show, Sarah. (laughs) Oh, right, right, right. Where were you? We should not drink wine before the show. I know. Something's wrong here. Okay. The question came up in a conversation. We were actually talking about two-buck chuck. Mm-hmm. You'd almost have to be dead not to know what two-buck chuck is, because I guess Trader Joe's is all over the country now, right? They are. They are. Not everywhere, but so some people don't know. But even I'm, I'm imagining people who don't have a Trader Joe's have had somebody bring them a bottle of two-buck chuck. But you know it's not two bucks anymore. $2.49. I, 
good sense. I know. I bought some just a few weeks ago. Why? Um, <laughs> oh, that's a secret. <laughs> no. No, I was. I bought it to do a blind tasting with with some more expensive wine. And two buck chuck is like you say, two forty nine a bottle now. Yeah, and we should uh, actually do an entire show on two buck chuck because it's an interesting show. That and would this be fun. actually. This actually is a nice lead in to it though, because the question that was posed in this impromptu conversation was when somebody loves their cheap bottle of wine, whatever it might be, two buck chuck, you know, white Zinfandel, whatever it is, do we want to convert them up to something that's a a little better? And what I mean by that is this, is that there are a lot of people obviously that drink mass produced wines, inexpensive wines, and a lot of people, especially the wine snobs, will poo-poo those people and belittle them for drinking inexpensive, you know, mass-produced wine. And so in this conversation, when somebody was talking to me about teaching wine appreciation and getting them to, you know, try better, more expensive things, I posed the question, why would you do that? Because the remember, we're talking about people who love these wines, okay? And it's different than people who say, I don't like red wine. Where are you on this, Sarah? Well, there's so many questions embedded in that. Yeah, I saw because, your wheels were yeah, just like turning. They the are smoke, turning. Smoke I'm, coming out of ears and nose and everything. There's an assumption in there that um, a more expensive wine is a better wine. Um, that could be debated. Oh, man, are you opening up a can of worms I now? know. Because there are a lot of issues here. There are a lot right, of issues. But but we can keep it simple, too. Whether, when, when have we ever done that? <laughs> we go in all directions, okay. I think. Um, but I think it's a huge question. It just came up for me a couple weeks ago, um, and I was leading a seminar. I was moderating a seminar that had a number of winemakers involved, um, and they were presenting their wines at all different price points, and one of them was in the low teens. And the audience, someone in the audience raised her hand, and she said, I want to understand here what's going on because I tasted this $12 wine, and I absolutely love it. But she said, I don't really like this $50 wine. Right. Um, and she said, am I wrong? And and that was such a loaded question with wrong and right um, about... So what's the answer then? Well, my, my quick answer to her then, uh, before the more thoughtful winemakers jumped in, was that on the lower price end, there's wine that is just made to jump out at you with fruit, generous fruit, and say, drink me right now. Um, it's just made for pure, instant enjoyment. And that's what it's trying to do. It's the wine equivalent of soda pop. There you go. Yeah. yeah. And and it doesn't necessarily involve expensive wine growing or making. But then there's wine that's intended to make you think a little bit more. There are layers of interesting things underneath that don't necessarily immediately pop out. Um, and some people just aren't geared to respond to that or even get that. Um, but do they need to be? Do we need to push them there? I liken it to going to the symphony. If you go to the symphony, you'll find different kinds of people there. You'll find the person who hears the oboe, they hear the cello, they hear the brass, they hear all of the different parts, and then you have the people who hear the symphony. It's the finished product. You know, it's kind of, it, it foods the same way. You know, do you taste the frosting separate of the cake, separate of the filling, or do you just taste cake? Either way is okay with me. <laughs> 
Those are good analogies. It doesn't matter. I say this, that, you know, you can get into a lot of trouble if you develop a passion for really good and oftentimes expensive wine. And wine can eat up a lot of your household budget. That's true. Yeah. So why try to convert somebody to something that is going to end up costing them if you drink a bottle of wine every other night, let's say. Some people drink more than that. Um, No comment here. No, no, no comment here. Okay. But if you try to convert them and let's say it's a $35 bottle of wine and they drink three of those a week, that adds that's, up. that's that's the cost of your insurance, oh, there's a your car payment, right? It, it does add up it really is. quickly. But I, you know, I actually kind of believe, I don't kind of, I do believe that people will automatically, if they drink that wine they're appreciating right now and then allow themselves to, to dip into some elaborately made wines, I guess you could say. I think there's a little bit of a natural progression that you'll you're, you're you'll so come, practical. I you swear, know, yeah. you, you start getting bored with this the very simple one note kind of one. But you know, Sarah, that you've met tons of people who will tell you that you know what, I am happy with my Sutter Home White Zinfandel. I don't want anything else. Sure, and I actually still think Sutter Home does the best White Zinfandel. They were the first, and I think they're still the best. And, there, and there's nothing nothing wrong with White Zinfandel. Nope. You know, if you like it, absolutely that's great. nothing. And they do mm-hmm. a perfectly good job. It's just soda poppy to me. And right. that's okay. Because I, I like a Pepsi or a Coke once in a while. And by the way, can't tell the difference. But I'm going to leave you with this thought. And I know you're going to jump on this one because this is your passion, Sarah Schneider. If you're happy with inexpensive wines, go exploring all the inexpensive wines out there because there's a gazillion of them. There are so many of them. And the, and it, it becomes fun for me to try to see what I can find for five or ten dollars. I couldn't agree more. Um, There are gems among that in that sea. Um, I'm mixing my metaphors here, but not all inexpensive wine is created equal. And I drink an awful lot of cheap wine. It's it's part of my job. I mean, it's it's not hard. Out of a paper bag? (laughs) No, I do it proudly. Okay. Um, It's not hard to find a $60 bottle of good wine. It is hard to find an $8 bottle of good wine. Moral of the story, drink what you like. Don't let anybody tell you you shouldn't like it out of principle. Big yes to that. Okay. Sarah, I say sign out and go drink some really expensive wine. Big yes to that. (laughs) Okay. That's going to do it for Grape Encounters Radio. That's going to do it for Sipping with Sarah. It's not going to do it. We're just going to do it again next week. I'm for that. Okay. Another yes. Your Grape Encounter isn't over. We're just taking a breather until next week's edition. 